Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hello, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of the Italian Wine Podcast. As I mentioned last week, we're starting with a, a new format this week, and instead of reading the book, we're going to be talking to people who are actively engaged in the Italian wine business in the U.S., but maybe some folks that you don't normally hear from at uh, trade shows, events, and uh, trade articles. And we're going to start the series off with Giuseppe Lacasio. Uh, Giuseppe is founder and managing partner at Vintners, that's V-N-T-N-E-R-S.com, Vintners.com without the I, and also as a broker for a selection called Selezione Varietale. Did I pronounce that okay, Giuseppe? That was great. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Okay, I'm going to pass it over to Giuseppe to give a little background on who he is, where he's worked, and what he's doing now. So uh, why don't you fill us in on your history? Thank you for uh, for the introduction, Steve. Yeah, I have to say I've been lucky to spend pretty much all my adult life in the wine industry, specifically in uh, fine wine imports and, and distribution. My uh, my uncle, Leonardo Locascio, is considered one of the pioneers of fine Italian wines in the U.S., and uh, I started working in wine but when I was uh, little, slightly less than 21 years old for the record so I did my very first in Italy when I was 16 then when I was finally legal age and I moved to the US I started working in wine bow really from the ground up starting from the warehouse and then ending in brand management sales management uh, portfolio management I spent nearly 20 years at uh, at wine bow so I was let's say in a way born and raised in the wine industry in the US and now you've picked up and moved to California tell us about that yeah, that is correct. You know, that was part of a life decision other than just the work decision. My, my, all my direct family has moved to California in the last 15 years. And even though I was born in New York and I will always be a New Yorker at heart, uh, but uh, with my wife, we wanted to have a little bit of a change in our lifestyle and uh, Northern California sounded great to us. And uh, we moved uh, in June 2020. Let's say the pandemic really gave us a huge push to do that. And we now live in, in Sacramento. So Northern California, this is where my brother lips and uh, we love it great okay let's get into the uh, the questions so one more thing i did want to mention that giuseppe's a graduate of the uh in italy international academy and let me color some of your comments as as we go forward here i'd love to hear that perspective but let's start right off with uh, kind of the big question that everybody's wrestling with is okay we've got covid now it's had a tremendous impact on the american market what do you see as the opportunities and challenges that are facing Italian wineries in the U.S.? And more importantly, or as importantly, what do you think is coming next? Yeah, you know, I'm sure, Steve, uh, I and, and all my colleagues and, and you as well, we've been monitoring things since the very beginning of COVID. And um, let's say in, in the very first couple of months, I think it was very apparent that, uh, you know, the sales really switched to the off-premise, which means really retailers and shops, wine stores, grocery stores. 
while you know social distancing restrictions were keeping restaurants closed and all of that. What we understood after a few weeks was that uh, this amazing increase in sales in shops, really in retailers, really went to the benefit, obviously domestic wines, but also when it comes to imported wines, it went to the benefit of brands that were already established, varietals or categories that were already established. So after a few months, I think we can all agree that like in, in every other sector of the economy, there are some winners and some losers. So for example, large brands, not just popular. I mean, I'm not just talking about the $15 Pinot Grigio, the $15 Prosecco. I'm also talking about established super high premium categories like could be Barolo, Barbaresco, or Brunello, or very luxury brand like some super Tuscans. They have benefited because they already had a fairly deep and important footprint on the market. The brands that have been suffering or the categories that have been suffering are basically the brands that were new to the market, that were relying on the hand sale from a sommelier or from a shop owner, or the varieties, and I'm talking about specifically Italian wines, or the varieties that were, you know, Italy has a lot of native varieties, but they're mostly unknown to the general public. So all those have been struggling because uh, and i'm sure this is clear to everyone now what covid broke was that link between you know the consumer and the last uh, you know ring of the chain of the supply chain that brings the wine those wines to them so for example to sell i don't know a, a nero di troia okay from from puglia and i don't have any so i'm talking just as an example this is a wine that requires a hand sale, either from a sommelier, from a captain in a restaurant, or from those fine wine shops where you have some service personnel on the floor that uh, guide the purchasing decision of the consumer. So all of those have been suffering. Okay. So on the other end, I'm sure you've seen the numbers for like Prosecco or Pinot Grigio. And, and if you look at the numbers of, in general, imported Italian wine, they're actually not that bad because Italian wine relies heavily on those categories. So I think this is the picture that we have that we have today. And I'm sure after a few months of COVID, this is even more clear now. Okay, thanks. That kind of segues to a parallel issue that I tend to focus and deal on, and, and you've created a company to address, so I'd like you to talk about that. That Many produce, Italian producers, both those that are currently here and those that would like to be here, feel that A, they don't understand the three-tier system, but more to the point, the three-tier system is an obstacle of some sort that you know they have to go through an importer, a distributor, and then ultimately a retailer or an on-premise operator. And, and it's a challenge. Each step of the way. We're also aware that there's a lot of changes going on in regulatory issues in the United States that are making it uh, maybe not easier, but more options for suppliers, both those that are here and want to expand and those that aren't here and want to come here. Would you comment on that? Yeah. So for sure, you know, I, I see two things. On one end, the three-tier system it's not being dismantled, it's not going to go anytime soon, right? Unfortunately, in a way, because yes, it is an obstacle to a lot of either new producers that want to come into the US market or producers that want to change the way they get to the market. But I do not see any political capital behind dismantling the three-tier system. So that's something that I think it's going to stay. On the other end, 
COVID has given a huge acceleration to changes. And as you know very well, in the aftermath of COVID, especially in the big markets like New York or Chicago, things like that, the states were able to implement some changes in the law to allow restaurants to do, for example, in New York, as you know, sales of bottles to go, which, as you know very well, it's not allowed normally, normal times in, in, uh, in that state. So, you know, I think COVID, COVID, it's really changing some things or at least is, is creating some awareness, all right, that something needs to change. I don't know how many of these uh, temporary, um, you know, permissions are going to be in place. I don't know if we're going to go back to whatever it was before. But as I said, I think COVID has started something. At the same time, you know very well that when it comes to internet sales, domestic U.S. wineries and domestic U.S. retailers are regulated in a very different way. And as you know very well, there were some very important landmark cases discussed by Supreme Court last year that have started to create a dent in, I mean, let's face it, it's really a discriminatory way of regulating internet sales. Although that means that, as you know, in the U.S., most of the rules are made by states when it comes to commerce of alcohol. And so it means that there needs to be changes at the state level, which also means that either the legislator decide to change the rules or that it must be someone that brings the state to court and fights for uh, you know, changing the rules. So basically, long story short, I think the general infrastructure of the three-tier system, it's going to stay. That being said, I think going forward, because online commerce is becoming so important, I hope there will be some changes in terms of putting retailers and domestic wineries on the same on the same level. So if that happens, there is a huge opportunity for non-domestic wineries, so wineries in Italy, for example, to sort of bypass the traditional three-tier system. I want to make something clear, though. I mean, the three-tier system, it's basically inefficient today because there is you know, it, it functions as a filter in a way, but it's, uh, it's stuck because there is so much wine that people want to export to the US and there are only so many retailers and restaurants. So there is, it really creates a bottleneck. But at the same time, I don't think distributors are going to go away. I don't think importers are going to go away. You need those actors in, 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 a, in a healthy wine industry because they do have a really important role in distribution. So basically, even if uh, if online retailers start to be able to, 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 to have less restriction, you still need a winery in Italy still needs a distributor because they need to create inventory locally. They need to represent the brand with a larger pool of trade accounts. A retailer can sell the wine directly to consumers, but as you know, it's a really, really competitive market. And thinking that one can solve the problem of selling to the US only through a, an online retailer, it's, it's, it's a little naive. Because if I was a winery, I would want my wines to be also in restaurants. I would want my wines to be also in other retailers. So I think it's going to be good if uh, things start to open up for the e-commerce in the US. But as a winery, I think I would want to have an importer or I would want to have a distributor. Just as a mix 
starting to have a mix of channel channel distribution would be nice. That's what I'm trying to say. If that's uh, if that, that makes sense. Yeah. So what we've seen with e-commerce is the beverage alcohol industry, as, as we call the drinks industry in the U.S., is uh, woefully behind every other category. You know, if electronics is 50 and books are 50, 60 percent penetration by e-commerce, at best, wines and spirits are at maybe 4 percent. But if you read the, the trade press, that has dramatically changed and there's been 10 years of progress in 10 months. And we haven't caught up yet with other classes of goods that are sold on e-commerce. But the expectation is that the selection and the service for online purchase of wines is going to be equal as it is for every other product. To consumers, they don't know and nor do they care that the regulatory environment is different. So one of the key numbers I heard is wine.com has, has grown Two months ago, it was 225%. I've heard it's over 300% last year. And that's the only true pure play e-commerce solution. But there are many other flavors, if you will, of e-commerce. And it also, to your last point, represents a way for someone to get a toe in the water, a way to start that isn't the normal way where all the roadblocks lie. You want to comment on that? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and I'm sure you have, you have seen the news recently that Uber is buying Drizzly. So I want to make sure people understand that Drizzly, it's basically an app that allows consumers to get alcohol beverage delivered to their address, like just like they would order a burger or, or Chinese food or things like that. So in other words, you know, there is a part of the e-commerce that is consumer driven, meaning that a consumer will go on Drizzly and look for something that they know, a Chardonnay, a Cabernet, a Chianti, a Valpolicella, things like that. That model doesn't really work for brands that are new or brands or varieties that are unknown, because it's really unlikely that a, a, a U.S. consumer goes on Drizzly to buy a bottle of Nero di Troia, just to say, because you know, no one really knows that variety. So the other flavor, as you mentioned, will be retailers that are actually pushing, promoting things that are less known, things that are a little bit more esoteric, uh, new brands, new producers that are that are just coming into the market. So yeah, the conduit is going to be the same. It's going to be internet sales, okay, if you want. There is going to be a delivery system for sure, but it really is going to be different depending on what we are going to sell. Are we going to sell a brand that is established? Are we going to sell something that is not on the market yet? Are we going to sell something that people know? Are we going to sell something that people don't know yet? So yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of those things. So structurally, I've heard people talking, and I've been using the phrasing too, that you know there has been the off-premise retail and the on-premise, Horeca as it's known in Europe and other parts of the world. But now there's also e-premise, and that straddles two categories. It's certainly very active on the trade side. We're not going to be talking about that here. We'll do that in another episode. Episode. But certainly on the consumer side, e-premise has become really important, almost to the point to a lot of consumers, how it gets to their house is not a concern of theirs, that it gets there. So rather than having to go physically into a store, if you can order it by phone or by internet and get it delivered without having to know all the legalities or illegalities of using a someone in the middle to facilitate delivery of the product. That really changes the way people think about and buy beverage alcohol now, and I think it's going to affect it in the future. Do you agree with that? 
I do, I do. And I agree that to the end consumer, most of the regulations are unknown. So uh, especially the younger generation, they think they can order, uh, you know, a six pack of beer or a bottle of vodka or a bottle of wine from the internet, just as they order anything else. So I hope at one point, uh, you know, each state legislation is going to consider that. And I'm sure, you know, there will be some some restrictions because we're talking about alcohol and all of that. And that's understandable. But from the standpoint of the consumer, it makes no sense that uh, you might want to buy some wine that uh, for some reason is only available in, I don't know, Missouri, and they can't ship it to you in New York. It doesn't, does, for, for the consumer, that does not make any sense. So I hope we will see some, some, some opening on that side. One of the other things that's happening, and I see it as, as major, having a major impact on the industry now and dramatically so in the future, is the concept of label recognition technology. Principally now it's on Vivino and it's on Wine Searcher that allows consumers to have a lot more or to, to get at their fingertips a lot more information on a given wine. I like to think about it this way. If someone's holding a bottle of wine and they use their cell phone to capture the label and then look up ratings, reviews, wine pairings, critics, and so forth. It changes the model of how information is passed from the producer to the consumer. I think long-term we'll get into talking about engagement as opposed to just presenting that information. But it opens the door for what I call the long-tail wines. And I think when we think about Italy, it's most of the wines are long-tail wines. We're not talking about just Santa Margarita Reggio. There's, I don't know how many, 500, 600 indigenous varieties. And there are people who are interested in buying those. They're just not definable or localizable through traditional marketing tools, such as geography. They don't all live in New York. But there might be one guy in St. Louis, Missouri, who happens to be a fan of Nero de Troya or something like that. Um, and so the difference is we can now Consumers will be able to find things and discover things, find things that they're looking for and discover things that they didn't realize they were looking for a lot easier today and going forward more so. Thoughts? I, I totally agree with you. And uh, I think when it comes to investments that wineries can do, or you know, when it comes to thinking about what a winery can do in terms of marketing, those are the things, and sometimes there are very simple things to do at the winery level. For example, optimizing the label for those type of uh, recognition technologies, label recognition technologies. And it's funny because Italians, we are extremely creative and sometimes our creativity plays against us because if you have a very elaborate label that it's hard to recognize by one of those apps, then you're definitely not playing to the strengths of your brand. So simple things like making sure your labels are optimized for label recognition technology is a great thing. Making sure if you put any QR code on the back label, that QR code is used wisely, not just sending it consumer to the website and maybe the website is not updated or the link is broken. Simple things like that. Uh, you know, we, we really have to put ourselves in the shoes of the final end user or the final consumer. And for the longest time, as you know, wineries have been relying on importers or distributors to convey the communication. Now, all the communication, it's on the winery. So it's the winery that has to make sure their social media are updated, they're meaningful, their labels are updated. And quite frankly, especially for retailers online that they have to put their products on their website, the winery should make sure that they have updated pictures taken in a certain way, like professionally taken, bottle shots um, in different sizes, different formats, different types of resolution. It, between you and me, I mean, I, I encounter this problem a lot. Bottle of wine, it's it's a tough subject to photograph 
for a website because it's long, all right? So, and usually most of the websites are optimized for having something more of a panoramic view. So, you know, playing around those things, it's really important. One is have to make every effort to make sure that uh, their marketing is aligned with the needs of today e-commerce or today social media. I think the way, one way to think about that is wineries were and still are responsible for how their brand is presented to consumers. And they have been through shelf talkers and case card displays and the old off-premise world, if you will. And now it's online. The question I get asked a lot is, well, how do I do that? Vivino used to have a self-directed tool where you could upload this information. They took that down because it was problematic. People had a hard time doing that. But you can reach out to Vivino. You can reach out to Wine Search. And if you get your product optimized on those sites, high resolution photos of the bottle on a white background in situ with, you know, with food, the ratings and reviews and critic scores and all that kind of stuff. That information, once it's online somewhere, is going to get scraped by all the other retailers who are selling that product. And they want an easy way to populate that content online. And scraping it is the, is the easiest way where they've got bots that go out and grab the information that they need. So you make an investment to get it into the label recognition sites and that information uh, becomes forever green and everybody else is going to see it there. So you end up, the winery ends up being in control of how their brand is presented to the consumer. I have one other one which may be boring or maybe significant. I'll let you tell me what you think. There have been two major tax issues that we've been dealing with in the U.S. One is what's called the uh, Craft Beverage Modernization Act, which basically reduced federal excise taxes on wines and spirits by roughly 90%, or at least the first 100,000 gallons, which is more than most Italian wineries are going to be selling in the U.S. That's significant, but a lot of producers I talk to are not familiar with the system and are surprised to find out it, it all ends up in the pockets of of the importer because the importer has to apply for its a credit. And the second thing is tariffs, which has been a big battleground was for the Trump administration. It may be easing up. Italy's been kind of hardened from that, if you will. Bad choice of a word, I suppose. But, um, you know, even countries like Great Britain and the Scotch business and France and the wine business and Spain, for that matter, have been hit really, really hard. Italy's been free from that. Have Italian wines taken advantage of that? And if so, do you have any examples of, of that? Well, you, you know, you're right. It's funny. We lived in funny times because on one end, the government was taking money away with tariffs and on the other end, it was giving money back with the credit. So it was kind of weird to explain all of that to one reason uh, in Italy. But anyway, um, I think that uh, the tariff situation has somewhat impacted some Italian wineries, not because the tariffs were imposed on the actual products, but because most of the fine wine importers usually import wines from France, from Spain, from Italy, from Austria, etc. And those tariffs have been, you know, they just can't get rid of the wine. I mean, the importers have long-term relationships. They have a market to bring the product to. Sometimes it's really important wines that they have to sell. They can't just stop selling it. So the tariffs has impacted Italian wineries in the sense that has decreased the amount of budget available for discretionary buying of Italian wine. In other words, let me, let me explain. If you have to buy Burgundy or Champagne or whatever French wine or Spain and you have to buy it there is, you can probably you know decrease the quantity but you have to bring something in you can't just stop buying it and it's costing you more then guess what you're going to buy less of Italian wine that you don't really need that much or maybe it's those esoteric wines that you know there is a very low risk of going out of stock of them if you know what I mean so it is true tariffs have not uh, been applied to to Italian wines 
But to to certain extent, they have created an issue. Obviously, Italian brands that are very strong have not suffered anything. And I think to a certain extent, they have benefited from the tariffs. I'm sure people that were buying least expensive champagne probably moved to higher-end Italian sparkling wines. But uh, again, it's not a clear picture. There have been some collateral damages, so, so to speak. So it's not all uh, uh, roses. It's, uh, the tariffs have been a problem for Italian wine as well. Yeah, I think the good news is we're going to, well, I'm forecasting that the tariffs, I think, will be ended. Um, and the U.S. government made that FET tax credit permanent just a few months ago. So that's uh, really on the bright side. One other area, and I think you're involved in this, maybe you can explain more about it, that I think a lot of smaller producers have found success in is through wine clubs. And there's a bunch of different flavors of how wine clubs are structured. Can you talk a little bit about that and how wineries might be able to participate in that? Yeah, for sure. So let's say there are a couple of wine clubs that also import wines, and that probably it's uh, it's a great way for a winery to establish a direct contact with the U.S. consumer. But most of the wine clubs sell wine that it's already in the U.S. So the, the wine club would buy the wine from a distributor. So, you know, bypassing the three-tier system, it's not as easy as we think yet. But wineries that already have a good footprint, a good recognition, they have a few wine clubs that, that are that are supporting the growth of their brand. It really depends. If it's a winery, it's completely new. It's unlikely that a wine club that also imports the wine directly will probably pick them up because unless it's a wine club that uh, it's followed by consumers that trust them blindly, you know, th- you need some brand recognition. It's really risky to put in a wine club a wine that has zero recognition whatsoever. You need something that has a little bit of recognition. Maybe not a super popular wine, but a little bit of recognition. So yeah, it's, it's a great way to do it. And I hope in the future there will be more wine clubs that will import directly. It's something that with Vinterns we are considering doing. The logistics of being an importer in a wine club are complex to be very blunt. And so I think the shortcut is to work with wine clubs that are buying the wine already in the US. Going back to what I was saying, having an importer or having a distributor, it's still something that uh, needs in, in, in some way to happen. You can't just bypass all that, not yet. Okay, which leads to another point. I run into this all the time with the people I consult with is when they come to the US, they want to go to New York, San Francisco, Miami, Chicago, Dallas, the major markets. I can understand that because that's where most of the wine is sold, but the reality is it's also the most competitive markets and the hardest ones, the most expensive ones in which to get your voice known. Can you talk a little bit about, call them secondary markets? We know in the industry can be really significant, and that includes everything from control states like New Hampshire to states that maybe are second-tier market but still very sophisticated, and I would use Minnesota and Colorado as examples there. Talk about that. Yeah, for sure. I think COVID had an impact on that as well, because as you know, major metropolitan areas like New York, Chicago, to a certain extent, LA, San Francisco, for sure. A lot of professionals, and I'm speaking about specifically on-premise professionals, so sommeliers, wine directors, and all of that, they have moved moved to less expensive places. They have moved to places maybe where there were less restrictions on the restaurants, or they have moved and they changed career. I know a couple of uh, really important sommeliers that used to work in New York, 
York, and they are now retailers in Colorado. So yes, the what we call the secondary market, that's the beauty of the US market. It's still growing in that sense, because people are moving and uh, people with a, an amazing background in selling fine wine are now not just working in New York or Chicago, San Francisco, but they are working in, I don't know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, rather than yeah, St. Louis, Missouri, and things like that. So this is, I think, the most important angle that we can use to explain the growth of the U.S. market. It's a knowledgeable market when it comes to trade buyers. It's an expensive market. Yeah, but yeah, it's growing in all those states. And I think you pick two really good markets in Colorado and Minnesota. And I believe those are the next big markets because of a number of factors that underpin their regulations and all of that. So yeah, I think, you know, wineries sometimes get fixated with uh, finding a distributor in New York or Miami or San Francisco, which are extremely cutthroat kind of competitive market, where it's really difficult and really expensive to get some sort of footprint, some sort of distribution. And instead, they overlook markets like Minnesota, Colorado, or Georgia, things like that. North Carolina, for example, I think it's a great market, frankly. So yeah, yeah I usually invite my clients uh, when I, as a broker to not be fixated with New York, Miami, San Francisco, Chicago, and things like that, but to invest in relationships in smaller markets. And my experience in the last 12 months has been that the actual so-called smaller markets have ordered more wine than distributors in New York or, or in San Francisco. Okay. We had mentioned the trade side of e-commerce, and I said we'd talk about it another time, but I'm going to do that now anyway, because we might have some time to do a patch. So I'm going to tee you up here. One of the big areas that we've seen tremendous growth in is e-commerce at the trade level. So whether it's a service such as 750.com or similar, retailers, on-premise operators are learning that they can do the ordering themselves without necessarily waiting for a rep from a given wholesaler to at their site. Do you see this being a, some sort of a fundamental thing that's going to change forever in the future? Or what impact is this going to have on the role and function of a sales rep or a distributor? That's a great question. And, you know, I think it's another part of the industry that has been uh, disrupted, or maybe the disruption has been accelerated by COVID better. So in the future, I see that large and very large distributors will probably rely more on these order platforms. And as you know very well, I think both RNDC and Southern are developing their own platform. And so, again, we, we have to think of the market in terms of segments, in a way, like brand segments. If customers will probably, so a restaurant or a, or a retail store, won't probably have to call up a rep to order their 20 cases of, uh, of vodka or 20 cases of uh, Pinot Grigio. Those items don't really require service in the sense they don't need to be explained. You know, the customer can just browse by price point or they can browse by category, things like that. On the other end, I think it's gonna be vital to have skillful, knowledgeable salespeople to sell complex products, new brands, esoteric varieties, and things like that. So I think the market is going to have two sides. You will have the trade commerce platforms where you know buyers can buy whatever they need and they don't really need a, a physical person to go call on them and take the order. That I think that is going to go away for the most part. But you will have a smaller distributor, boutique distributor, high-end distributor. They will have an account manager that will call on restaurants or stores and guide them through their books and guide them through buying decisions. Because, you know, as a buyer myself, I call my rep and I say, okay, this is what I would love to do. What do you suggest? So I think the market is going to be split in two. But for the most part, I think the large distributors probably will have less people on the field. 
like high-end account managers for the more complex part of their portfolios. So their function will change or evolve or adapt to these new tools. One of the big conclusions I hear from all this conversation then is you know, a lot of people I talk to say, well, you know, I, I don't understand social media. I don't really understand e-commerce. I'm not ready to participate in it, either on the consumer or the trade level. That's not an option anymore. If you're going to be marketing, selling your product in the United States, you have to be internet savvy and understand how everybody, each level in the chain, is dealing with that and what the options are. Again, we have on-premise, we have off-premise, and now we have e-premise, and that applies to trade as well as consumer. Yeah, you know, again, it's true. I mean, some people don't want to get engaged, don't want to be very active on social media. But I think the least they can do is to use social media to be found. So, you know, it's like everything else that is a pull and a push strategy. I'm totally fine if a winery wants to have a more relaxed approach and just put their content on their social media and rely on consumers to find them rather than seeking consumers. That's that's fine. But I think the least wineries can do is to make sure their internet presence or the web website, the social media, all the marketing tools are updated and in line with what the market needs, which is high resolution, clear con- content, good English. You know, it's simple things like that. And uh, that can be used by both consumers and the trade. So I think if I was a winery, I would probably invest in polishing all of that and making sure what I need to communicate comes out clear and it doesn't really matter if you're then hiring someone to find new followers or or all of that but if someone follows you or someone finds you make sure that someone understands what you do how you do it and uh, and what makes you different from the rest that's the least wineries can do thanks for that i think the big takeaway here is optimize your content online with high resolution images and content that fleshes out how a brand is perceived because you as the supplier are the one in charge. Well, it looks like we're out of time and I want to thank Giuseppe Lacasio of Vintners, V-N-T-N-E-R-S dot com and the uh, Giuseppe Lacasio Selezione Varietale who's been speaking with us this week with his observations on how the U.S. market is changing and adapting in a world of rapid change, including taxes as well as COVID. Optimize how your wine is presented to consumers as well as the trade by making sure that you have high quality images and information on the wine, ratings, reviews, wine and food pairings, and so on and so forth on the primary label recognition sites, Vivino and WineSearcher.com. It's probably the easiest and simplest thing that you can do and also the one that's going to pay most dividends down the road. Thank you very much. This is Steve Ray, and I I look forward to seeing you join us next week on the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you, Giuseppe. This is Steve Ray saying thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.